0: Hello and welcome to the Manage Self Lead Others podcast, mainly for experienced and aspiring people managers. I'm your host, Nina Sunday, and this is the show to help you explore ways to become the best version of yourself at work as a manager. Each episode, you'll hear from some of the brightest business minds on the planet who share your passion to elevate and transform team culture. They'll share insights in self-leadership and leading others. Together, we can make workplace culture better. Are you ready? Because it's time to manage self leaders. Simon Reynolds is one of the world's leading high-performance coaches for CEOs and entrepreneurs who coaches business leaders from all over the world. And one of his companies, founded in the year 2000 with only two people, eight years later employed 6,000 staff in 14 countries and was valued at 500 million. He's won over 50 industry awards including Advertising Agency of the Year twice, Gold Lion Cannes International Festival of Creativity grand prize london international advertising awards australian tv commercial of the year magazine campaign of the year and newspaper ad of the year his book why people fail reached number one on the australian bestseller list in both business and self-improvement categories his latest book win fast is on executive productivity with simon's incisive thinking and brilliant business mind he mentors CEOs and entrepreneurs from all over the world, from his homes in Los Angeles and Sydney. Welcome Simon. You're a coach to CEOs and senior leaders. What's one mistake you find managers doing that if they didn't do, would make a positive difference to team effectiveness?
1: Well, that is a terrific question, which managers should be asking themselves uh, all the time. Uh, I would say uh, channel capacity. So. Uh, in my opinion, the, the greatest mistake, which leads to a whole raft of mistakes, is trying to do too much. And limiting what the leader does, I think changes everything. It, it, it times 10, uh, their focus uh, on key things and uh, increases greatly the staff's uh, focus on, on key things and, and leads to a much greater chance of getting stuff done. Now, what tends to happen is in some uh, companies is uh, managers have this raft of changes that they're gonna make. And if you look at the statistics, a lot of um, substantial uh, strategic changes in companies don't work. They don't occur, they don't get done, the promise is not delivered. And all of this could have been uh, um, greatly uh, reduced if they just tried to do less and respected channel capacity.
0: Yes, now channel capacity, you mean the bandwidth of the team? What ca- is the team capable of fitting in with what they're already being obliged to do? Is that what you mean by that?
1: Spot on. We only, as humans, we only have a certain capacity to, to devote an a, a amount of thinking time to getting a certain number of things done and people don't respect that enough. I don't think that a leader should be working on more than three changes in, the, in their company.
0: And I know we're in a, in a disrupted world where perhaps the need for, for massive change is important. But unless you bring people along with you and make it a human centred approach to change, you might be issuing orders. But unless you win the hearts and minds of your individual contributors, that change initiative is going to fall over. It's going to flop.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, this, uh, the team aren't idiots in, in, in medium to bigger organisations. Often they're listening to the leader talk about this raft of changes that, that they're going to make and they don't believe it. They don't think it's going to happen. And, and so you don't get engagement. But when there's only three things that you're going to change, uh, they do believe it. They know there's no escape. They know the leader's going to be focused on
0: it. That's right. If they don't fully believe it, they won't, be em- they won't embrace it boots and all. And they'll silently go, well, why should I even put my energy into that? Because it's going to fall, you know, fail anyway.
1: Exactly. So, yeah, and, and there's this pantomime where they're they're playing out a, a series of roles, looking like they're doing it, but not really putting their heart into
0: yeah, it. Yeah, that's the worst thing that a people manager can allow to happen. So, now your Winfast book is has eighty productivity tips. It's, it's probably the richest book I've come across dealing with the general area of time management, getting things done. Now, often productivity is considered a personal responsibility in a team, but isn't that a bit hit or miss? How can a people manager inspire a team as a team to continuously improve their productivity?
1: Yeah, terrific question. Look, I think there's a terrible, terrible situation that's developed where um, almost no time is spent on productivity. Uh, you know the the amount of training that is on 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 strategy or on leadership, etc. But in the end, the only reason any any particular goal occurs is through the productivity of of the team. But when was the last time you walked through an office and 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 people could say, you know what? I give. I'd say we're nine out of ten. I think we are world class at being actually getting stuff done, and it's not the fault. Of the individuals, Uh, it's the fault of the leaders for not um, teaching them how to be productive. I mean, I find it extraordinary that you can go through twelve years of school and at the end of it not have been taught how to get things done effectively. You know, we live in a in a in a world that's full of logistics and materiality. You know, the movement of things, the, the the ability to interact with other people to get processes completed, is absolutely vital. But most people, even intelligent people, will go through their whole career not studying how to be more productive. And uh, it's a complete game changer when you do
0: it. Exactly. And all you have to do is find a really good book and read it and apply what's in that book. Yours is now up there as definitely one of them. The other one, you might have heard of David Allen's Getting Things Done. His is all you know, was the best practice book in the uh, early 2000s. But I'm now thinking that yours definitely covers um, some of the classic uh, best practice, but there's some new ones and I'm going to mention some of them uh, as we discuss. Um, The chapter, the called Spend More Time in Field Four. Now, I didn't even know there were four fields, but the field one is Things You're Terrible At. We have to do some of those. Field Two, Reasonably Good at some things feel three excellent at and feel four stuff you're fabulous at and also enjoy so can you speak to that please simon
1: absolutely you know there's a there's a common uh belief that we should work a lot on our weaknesses and and try and build our weaknesses up and i can understand the 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 line of logic there but in reality because we're short of time a better use of our time is to take stuff we're good at and spend more time doing it, and just handle a lot of the weaknesses, or delegate a lot of the weaknesses when, when when we can, because you two things happen when you do that. Usually, there's more progress in the organization than just you know managing doing the drudgery of managing uh, uh, things you're you're weak at, and second of all, you start loving your work more if you, if you're spending more time doing stuff you're fabulous at and um and and that you enjoy. Now the reality is that. Uh, we can't spend all our time on activities that we love, but we can do a lot more than we think by identifying how many units of time are we doing what we're really good at and that we really enjoy. And can I increase it? So, for instance, let us say if I did an analysis of my time over a week, uh, I, I might say, oh, I'm only spending six hours doing the stuff that, that I'm really good at. Well, how can I increase that to nine? And then it's obviously, you know, we've, we've made a major difference, I think, not only to our own enjoyment, but to the ultimate results of the company. And what is happening is when people do an analysis of their time, they're realizing they're not doing much stuff that, that they were actually hired to do, that they're really good at, that are their pluses.
0: And I'll tell you something, as a manager, when I, I had a larger team at one point in time, I had about eight people under me, no, nothing like the 6,000 people you've managed at different times in, in your career. But, you know, for me as a small business owner, eight people was, uh, I, you know, I had yeah. to manage them well. I can remember having one-on-one meetings with uh, uh, occasional people going through exactly what all their tasks were and asking them, which ones do you like best? Which ones do you dislike the most? And seeing if I could restructure because my my opinion was, why should I ask people to do stuff they don't like when there's probably someone else in the office that would happily take it on because that's their preference?
1: Mm. Mm, Yeah, well, that's brilliant. I mean, that's a very enlightened and very uncommon attitude. To take, you know, and you're obviously really thinking uh, uh, about management, and and let's not forget that we live in a world where unemployment is very, very low, and anyone good is is at any time uh, can leave for more money uh, to a, to another job. So getting people to do stuff that they're really enjoying is not just a nice to have; it's a must have for for self retention.
0: That's right. Now, the other chapter that really impressed me was uh, always look for the limiting factor. And we both share an admiration for, and this book is often behind me on on my shelf, Eli Goldratt, who's now passed on. He wrote the book The Goal and a few others. He actually started life as a physicist and then became a management consultant and it's his, in his book, The Goal, he talks about theory of constraints and you say, look for the one limiting factor that is pre- um, preventing progress or that is the roadblock or the obstacle. Um, yes, tell us more about the importance of looking for constraints and then having a laser focus on fixing it.
1: Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's so great to talk to another fan of, uh, of Gold wrap uh, because it's such a simple principle, but it's, it, it changes everything and, and simplifies management to a great degree. Uh, uh, you know, there's so many managers that are, that are just overwhelmed with what to do, and this, this really crystallizes their next steps. And as you, you've done a good summary of it, really, it's, it's little more than, but also enormous, uh, uh in its implication uh than these steps uh number one identify the key constraint in every situation uh, let's take a factory or let's take a, a company there's one bottleneck there's one thing that's slowing people down it could be uh, we don't have the right product we don't have the right distribution we don't have the right staff our manu- on, on a factory line there's a certain point that's not not working so number one identify the constraint Number, number two, um, in essence, there's I think five steps, but in essence, devote all resources, go overboard uh, attempting to fix that constraint. So don't just say, oh, it's a constraint we need to fix, but put, put the full power of the organization to eradicate that constraint. And then once you've done that, look for the next constraint and there is always a next constraint. And you can simply uh, run your whole organization doing this knowing that you're, you really are spending the time on the most important thing every time, and that you're creating this continual loop of excellence uh, uh, that, that will really change the, the profitability of money.
0: Absolutely, and it's a different question that you ask when you ask what's the one thing that is preventing our progress or creating a bottleneck or a delay, as opposed to what's the 20% of tasks that we should focus on Uh, you know, according to the 80-20 rule, if you put your effort uh, into the top 20% of tasks, you'll get an 80% result. So that's effort to results. So it's slightly different, isn't it? We can be working on our top 20%, but at the same time, what's the one thing that's getting in the way of us dealing with our top 20%? Is that how you would look at it? Yeah, I
1: think those two filters uh, or frameworks work well together yeah. uh, in analyzing what your key constraint is, you're going to be looking at, well, how do you define that? Well, what's the impact if we fixed it? What is, uh, you know, can we create, affect the 80% of results? Um, if, if, if with by changing this, or are we better doing something else? So I think they work really well together. And I mean, you know, like many, I'm a huge fan of uh, Richard Koch, who has written, as you know, not one, but four, four books, books on, on on eighty twenty principle and you know I was only coaching someone actually just before this call and we were talking about even though it's elementary how profound it is the 80-20 principle you know 20% of our friends give us 80% of the fun 20% of our plates in the kitchen we use 80% of the time 20% of our carpet gets 80% of the wear 20% of our shoes are being worn 80% of the time uh, throughout the entire universe, 80-20 is running things, and to not address it, which is what most people do, is is just crazy because it's it's not just a business changer; it's a life changer.
0: Yeah, I can really uh, recommend people read at least the first book of Richard Koch, which I've read, and uh, he's written another three. So there's a lot more to this principle, and I think what he said was most people think it's a 50-50 world, and it's not. Mm. And yeah. there's magic in that formula. Now, you yeah. then take the maths a little bit further and you uh, another chapter is lived by the 64-4 rule. Now, I needed to get back to the Kindle to read that after I listened to it to make sense of it, which is focus on the most important 20% of that 20% and that means 4% of what you do accounts for 64% of your results and focus yeah. on the top 4% of your t- current activities.
1: Yes, yes, and and this is really, really interesting for people who are managers who are over overwhelmed so first of all what 's the twenty percent of what I could do that would make the eighty percent and Just doing that all day long or as much as you can um, will you know dramatically increase your effectiveness. but inside the twenty percent let 's say there are three things you can do that will really make a difference in your company inside that there 's one of those or for, for to be mathematically, mathematically correct. Inside that, there's there's just one or two of those that are the 4%, are the, the best of the best, the most important of the most important. And the experts on, on 80-20 show that uh, the 20% of, of the 80-20 of the 20 is 4%. And how profound that is, that when we think we've got a million things to do, only 4% of what we do will give us 64% of our results. And that is so refreshing and relieving to know we don't have to do that much to make a difference in our company.
0: And I'll tell you something, uh, when I was uh, working, uh, before I had my business working as a conference organizer, and when I uh, learned to write down absolutely everything and then to work to priority, my life changed because instead of having things rolling around in my head that I was relying on memory, it was all there on one sheet and at the same time I was just looking at the top of the sheet because my top priorities were there, which leads us to the, the other chapter, which is do your most important tasks first. And it's all about writing your list in order of priority and writing a top six at the end of every day. Is that is that how you organise your... Um, your, your tasks,
1: your task list? Uh, I, absolutely. I, I'm a massive believer in prioritization. Mm. And, you know, we're using words that are commonly used in, in business lexicon. They're just not commonly done. I mean, most, most uh, uh, senior executives have a to-do list, but have they really spent 10 minutes staring at that to-do list each morning and carefully putting in numerical order the most important tasks first, right? No way, they're very loose in what they do. They do often uh, uh, the thing that's enjoyable or the thing that's immediate or whatever, but it's in prioritization that real success happens in our world where we have too much to do. Here's the reality, we're never gonna get all the stuff we have to do done in today's world or almost never. So prioritization is super important. And it's been a breakthrough for me because it's been confronting uh, my own performance to fully grasp that the most effective leaders are not the people who get more done. They are the people who get the most important things done and then try and somehow handle the rest. And that's all about prioritization.
0: Uh, look, that one distinction really can take the monkey off your back mm-hmm. and take the pressure off. If you realize just be as effective as you can be with a laser focus and don't worry about the fact that your, your, your task list is a mile long. I mean, as as David Allen would say there's that's all the someday maybes and often they disappear anyway yeah focus on what absolutely has to be done and of course you've got Brian Tracy saying eat that frog Mm -hmm. great book and uh while I I kind I always have my top priority my frog may not be the very first thing I do but it's definitely the second
1: (laughs) yeah and that takes real discipline and and it's you know, it's. it's, it's, it's a habit. It's a tough habit uh, to try and do. But uh, if you can be ruthless with that, and even just have it as your main uh, attempt, your main focus uh, to do the most important ta- uh, tasks first, that changes everything. You know, I'll just tell you very quickly, um, I had a friend of mine, Adam Davis, who won an Ernst & Young uh, uh, Business Award for being most successful in uh, New South Wales in his category. So major business award. And he was the youngest, at the time, the youngest uh, head of a public company in Australia. And I think he was 28. And when he went to get the award, and I you know, was at his table at the dinner, he said to the audience, I need to try and do one thing a week. One thing a week. And if I do that, I've done at least 50 major things for my company in, in a year. And here's a person who had used that philosophy to, to great success. And it was a terrific reminder that we can just get so caught up in, in just trying to do too too much. Now, obviously he's handling other stuff, but it, he's identifying just one priority yeah. a week. And he built a great company as a result.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, you talk in uh, about... In, in, in WinFast about um, just setting aside a small admin, you know, a few hours uh, once a week for admin tasks. And, you know, it's all about language and filters and framing things. I had all these, just this week, I had all these little itty-bitty tasks that had to be done and normally I see them as an absolute interruption, but they had to be done. And then I went, oh, this is just my admin morning.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It just, I just felt so much better about it.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, absolutely, and and bunching all those admin tasks into into one half day, like you said, or even one one full day, is a really uh, um, uh, powerful thing to do for the mind. Because we tend to, as senior leaders, we tend to be agitated all the time because we're handling a million things and some of them are admin tasks and then some of them are strategic and some of them are leadership, etc. And the brain's switching all different styles of activity. And it's just completely o- o- overwhelming so often. Whereas if you just say, hey, I, I know that Thursday morning is my admin day or my admin half day. Um, I'm just going to put it on a list. I'll get to that on Thursday. And- but- Suddenly, you can relax.
0: Yeah, it's it's all about feeling relaxed and in control, and knowing that you have a system and a timetable to get things done. So that's that's really good. Yeah. You talk about your three success protection questions. Mm-hmm. Question one is: What do I currently assume is true that might not be? Gee, that's a hard one to think about. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, and and so the whole concept of of the three success protection uh, questions is, uh, what. You know, there's a lot of successful people uh, watching, listening to this uh, podcast. And uh, the truth is we can blow it at times in our career by not asking these questions. So what is it that I assume is right now that may not be? Mm -hmm. Because it's errant assumptions, you know, as, as things we think were right but weren't right, that are often the worst parts of our career. And so by regularly asking yourself that question, it does protect enormously your level of success.
0: That's right. And then the, uh, the, the next question is what could possibly go wrong and what could I do if things went wrong? So they, they all go in together with, you know, your success protection question. Yes.
1: Yeah. And, and simply saying, like, things are going great. Now look at every area. With my staff, what could go wrong? What would happen if someone left? Oh, or missed. with my strategy, what, if, what could a competitor do to sink me? What could possibly go wrong? And most people don't ask that question.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think relating to uh, people that work for you, assuming that someone good is going to stay forever and not actually doing operations manuals or allowing them to have a lot of stuff in their head and not recorded or written down, that's, that's probably a big error that yes. people need to think about. Absolutely.
1: And you can sit there and it only takes, you know, uh, 20 minutes a month. To and schedule in your, in your calendar to do it and look at what can go wrong. But imagine how much that's going to help you when things go wrong.
0: Now, another chapter is use zero-based thinking to quickly transform your life, which is knowing what I know now, would I still have done this?
1: Oh, I reckon yeah. that
0: question would get you, uh, make you understand where you're feeling obliged or maybe where you feel a bit stuck. That's
1: yeah, so often we are running strategies and trying to make the most of strategies that we shouldn't even be doing. And, and you know it's a noble part of, of humans that, that do that, but zero-based thinking is really about going blank slate. Um, before I work out what, how, to, how to fix this, should I even be doing it at all? Should I be even working in this company? Should I even be having this conversation with this staff member or, or do I wish if i if, uh, if doing it all over again, would I even have hired them? And if the answer is no, maybe I should get rid of them, et cetera, et cetera. And to continually go blank, blank slate on this and evaluate everything we're doing uh, and, and, and say, should, is, it, is it something I, I should even continue? Very, very powerful.
0: So another chapter is apply the plus one method, remembering you've got 80 chapters, so I'm only getting to the top 10% according to my preferences. So apply the plus one method, and that's an important one. Um, is there another way to do this? Is there a better way to do this? Is that, uh, is that how you interpret that one?
1: Yeah, pretty much. So mm-hmm. what happens is that we, we often don't take much action in the course of, say, six months as, as leaders because... The magnitude of what we're trying to do sometimes overwhelms us. A classic example of this is people will often have something on their to-do list in their company that's quite important, but it could be a year before they even get to it because it's not not immediately demanding. And so the plus one formula is simply this, what's one thing I can do right now to make this uh, better? So for instance, let's say uh, we have low morale in our company. So instead of creating some amazing uh, series of uh, social events or, or a series of long meetings with them, what's one thing I could do to lift morale right now? That's and a good what question. I could do to lift morale, right? And just, just plus one, plus one, plus one, plus one. in all areas of our business can
0: be done in minutes often. and yet it really adds up. And that can tie back to theory of constraints, because if you see a constraint, Instead of seeing it as, oh, I've got to do a complete restructure, you can go, what's one thing, one thing I could do that could actually fix that constraint? So you tie in plus one with theory of constraints and suddenly, you know, you're moving forward. Well, it's that's
1: it. And, and momentum is showing, is showing in the quality of the company's output, but it's also very motivating for the leader themselves and the, and the team to see progress happening. You know, Anthony Robbins said something that I think is largely true happiness equals progress. And I think that when, when we, uh, even if we're starting with a low base in any area of our life or any area of our business, when we see momentum, when we see progress, we feel much better about everything. And that's important.
0: One of the earlier episodes uh, of this podcast with Lynn Kazaley, who wrote the book Ish, she talks about perfectionism often getting in the way of progress. And to know when you've, you've reached a point where the, the completion is adequate, rather than being perfect, because progress is more important than, than being perfect. So that ties right. in with that. Mm. And what a
1: great title for a book too. I'm a huge believer in that for, for leaders because uh, I, I'm a big believer in the 80, 80% principle that um, do, do for most things, 80% of them, you, 80% is good enough. No, and, yeah. and, and there's so much work to, to uh, get that up to 100% often. Some things have to be perfect, like engineering and building. But um, a lot of stuff. The client doesn't care. Your staff don't care. It's not going to be make much of a difference. But it's going to take you another ten years to make it uh, ten ten uh, hours to make it a hundred percent better. So just do right. everything
0: eighty percent. And I often think about how many people are going to be looking at this. If it's one person, I have to know when I've reached the eighty percent mark. If it's a thousand people, well then maybe I delegate someone else to finish it for me because it's just Great point. It needs to be tweaked. Great yeah. um, I do like the chapter on put on someone else's head. And there have been times in my life where I've thought, what would so-and-so think about this? So it's perfect uh, advice. Well, this is,
1: I I originally came from the advertising industry. And, you know, when you professionally come up with ads, uh, you spend most of your time uh, not, having ideas, enough ideas, right? So you're, you just sit there with a blank pad. And so I, I, over time, I tried all these different techniques. And one that really helped is I go, I'd, I'd literally pretend that I'd take my head off and put it on the, on the desk. I'd say, now, what would Einstein do with this situation in my company? Or, uh, and then I put his head uh, off and then I'd say, okay, what would Donald Trump do? You know, for better or worse, well, what, what, what how would he solve this? Uh, yeah. And then I'd put that down there and, and say, okay, what would uh, the um, Kasparov, a great chess player, do? Yeah. And and so by doing that, just over the course of half an hour and spending five minutes pretending you're those people, it enables you to access different ways of thinking as, as you imagine they think. Um, and, and you very often end up with lateral answers.
0: Well, We're sort of coming to the close of our conversation, Simon, and it's been absolutely fascinating. Um, Is there one productivity tip that if you're writing the book again, you'd add in that's not already there, like you've you've come to an aware, you know, you come to an awareness as an author that, oh, yeah, that was an important idea and I didn't manage to fit it in at the time.
1: Mm, Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Um, Perhaps the importance of being centred before you do anything, oh. before you do any of the productivity stuff, can you just take you know, five or six deep breaths, settle yourself, and just take a moment to center yourself? Because I think the difference in our effectiveness as a manager or a leader when we're centered versus attempting to do the same things when we're not centered is an entirely different result, a much better result. and and perhaps I'd I'd add a whole section on on how to be centered. I I think that state management Mm. is very underestimated in inside uh, uh, workplaces that you take the, the, some people might say he's the best business person in the world currently, uh, Bezos. And Jeff Bezos, certainly the richest person currently, Uh, but there would be varieties in his state where some days he'd be driving home and he'd go, you know, I wasn't that good today. So if the world's best businessman also has state variance, then we all do. So how do we make sure we're in the best state of mind? That's something most people aren't even asking, but it, 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 it leads to a tremendous improvement in output.
0: Well, simon i just also want to share with you i've i've attended your business accelerator some years ago and the one thing that always springs to mind when i think of you is the own the indecision period this is a sales tactic that you told us this is we're sort of uh, touching on not something that was in winfast but i just wanted to acknowledge that owning the indecision period in other words you send a a quote or a proposal or an action plan to a potential new client and you're waiting for them to make a decision even if you do follow up or or stay in touch just to keep sending them new information that's relevant and appropriate so that they're they're not actually um persuaded or wooed by a competitor that just happens to come along when they're ready to buy because they just forgot how good you were
1: Mm, absolutely we put all this effort and money and time into acquiring the lead we put all this effort into doing the proposal and then at the very moment that they're making a decision we barely do anything we send an email like hey if you've got any questions just let me know or or stuff like that The marketing should be as strong in the indecision period, which may only be three days or one week before they come back with their choice, uh, should be as strong at that point as it should be in the before and the during part of the sales process. And in nine out of 10 companies, it's super weak at that
0: point. So I've got a list, uh, I've got a little spreadsheet of what I call OTIP emails own the indecision period these are my o-tip emails that All it's right. like i'm sending updated information but for me it's an opportunity to keep stay top of mind with a potential new client before they make the decision to uh, proceed with with uh, my company so i absolute want to thank pleasure. you for that one.
1: Oh, absolute pleasure so glad that someone's actually listening
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's rewarding when you know that people are actually applying what you have found to be found to be true well Simon yeah. thank you so much uh, I think uh, this episode has um, definitely uh, touched on some terrific points that will help everybody's productivity and uh, and processes so thank you for uh, your generous uh, time today
1: well thank you for such insightful questions you know it's a it's a real art to ask great questions and you ask some some terrific uh, ones and I'm appreciative
0: My pleasure. Thank you. Today we've been speaking with the amazing Simon Reynolds on the Manage Self, Lead Others podcast. I'm your host Nina Sunday. Remember to subscribe and listen to Manage Self, Lead Others wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, ciao for now.